us. Uh, my name's Pete Weir. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. We're carrying on in this, this series in Luke. So let's pray together as we uh, come to this portion of God's word. Father, we ask that as we listen to your word now, that by the power of your spirit, we would see Jesus in his all-surpassing glory and splendor. And in seeing him, that we might be transformed to be more like him. Thank you, Father, that all that Jesus tells us is trustworthy and true. And we, we pray that a glimpse of his glory this morning would help us to keep listening and keep trusting Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Is it worth it? to follow Jesus? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? That is about the most important question that you could ever ask. As we heard in the reading just then, Jesus says one day he is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That our eternal destinies depend on our response to Jesus and his words. According to Jesus, the only way you can make sure that you find life then is to lose life now. And so Jesus calls us to embrace what he says is temporary, earthly loss so that we can find eternal, heavenly gain. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up a cross that leads to suffering and death. Now, I don't know what specifically it has or will cost you to follow Jesus today. But I guess it will probably involve something of the following. It will involve the loss of position, platform, privilege, pay, respect, job opportunities, followers, friends, comfort and security, and all that kind of other things for Jesus' sake. Now, Jesus knows that he's asking a lot of us. <laughs> he's asking us to be willing to give up everything for him. But Jesus promises that Whatever it costs you to follow him now, whatever you have to lose now to follow him, it will be worth it for what you gain eternally. Because we follow the pattern of Jesus, which we saw last week, suffering first and then glory. But all of that begs the question, doesn't it? Is it really worth it? Is it really going to be worth it? Can you really trust Jesus when he says that it will be? Now, lots of people will tell you that you can't. Some people might say, well, there's just no way of really knowing what lies after death. So it's better to live now while you can. Amass amazing stuff, enjoy brilliant experiences while you've got the chance, live your best life now. Now maybe you could hedge your bets with a little bit of religion, but don't deny yourself. I mean, that would be taking things just a bit too seriously, wouldn't it? Others would say, 
you definitely cannot trust what Jesus says. He, he was merely a, a well-meaning but misguided martyr with something of a Messiah complex. Don't take his kingdom claims seriously. Some people actually even try to use this passage to argue that very point. So they look at verse 27. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Aha! They say, you see, Jesus says these are true and trustworthy words. Truly, I tell you, that he would return and bring the kingdom of God and that his disciples would get to see that before they died. But that didn't happen. All the disciples are dead and Jesus still hasn't come back. See, you can't take his claims seriously. But the point of this passage is precisely the opposite now, Jesus is claiming there is an eternal kingdom, and he is going to prove it. Because the next story that we're going to look at this morning, the story of the transfiguration, it is the absolute confirmation and assurance that everything Jesus has said is trustworthy and true. That when he says that following him is worth it, no matter what it costs, you can take him at his word. The transfiguration is the proof. Jesus' promise is guaranteed by this glimpse of his glory. That's the first thing we see this morning. See the glory of Jesus. Verses 28 to 32. See the glory of Jesus. So when, when Jesus says that some of them standing there would see the kingdom of God before they died, Jesus was not talking about his second coming. He was talking about the transfiguration. And the way you know that is we just have to keep reading <laughs> from verse 27 on to verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. Now, if you read through Luke's gospel, it's really unusual for Luke to make a specific time reference. Tell us the exact number of days after that this event happened. And when he does make an explicit reference, he's always making a connection between those two events. And so just eight days after Jesus said those words that some who were standing there would see the kingdom of God, during which eight days none of the disciples died, some of those standing there, three of them in particular, Peter, James, and John, they get an exclusive opportunity to see Jesus' kingdom and glory. It starts with Jesus taking them up the mountain for an all-night prayer session. Uh, Luke doesn't actually tell us it's nighttime, but I think that explains why the disciples are so sleepy in verse 32. Uh, if you go regularly to a gospel community or to a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, you know how that feels, right? You come, it's been a long day at work, you have a nice meal, it's warm and cozy, you close your eyes to pray, and you find yourself just gently dozing off. So we've all been there, even the apostles, it's okay. But the fact that Jesus is praying tells us that something really important is about to happen. In Luke's gospel, whenever Jesus goes off to pray on his own, it's always right before something big happens. And it's the same here. As Jesus is praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Just imagine what that must have been like see Jesus transformed before their eyes, his clothes as bright as lightning. 
for all of Jesus' earthly life, there was nothing special about his physical appearance. He was an ordinary-looking bloke. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. No, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. His divine glory is veiled by his humanity. That's what we sing at Christmas, right? In that uh, brilliant Christmas song. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. But on this mountain, on this one utterly unique night, the veil is drawn back. And the disciples get a glimpse of his true glory. Luke tells us his clothes were bright like lightning. Matthew tells us his face shone like the sun. The radiant, pure, brilliant, beautiful brightness of the glory of the one and only Son. Seen. In that moment, Jesus does not change into something that he was not. Rather, this is the unveiling of what he truly is. It's the unveiling of his full divine nature and glory. In the transfiguration, we are seeing Jesus as he really is. They saw Jesus then as we will all see him one day when he comes, verse 26, as the glorious king of God's kingdom. You might think of it like this. The transfiguration is like the dress rehearsal for the second coming. And Peter, James, and John, they got the exclusive tickets to see the dress rehearsal. They got a glimpse of the full glory of Jesus in his glorious kingdom along with his glorified people. Because it's not just Jesus on the mountain with his disciples, is it? There's two other people there. Moses and Elijah also appear with Jesus in glorious splendor, verse 13. I've been trying to think about it this week. Why Moses and Elijah? I mean, of all the people in the Old Testament who could have been there, of all the other people, why Moses and Elijah? And I think there's, there's a few reasons. First of all, the fact that Moses and Elijah are there is very simply an affirmation of the afterlife that Jesus has been speaking about. See, our world says, when you're dead, you're done. But Moses and Elijah, they show us there is life after death. Moses died 1,500 years before Jesus. Elijah was taken up to heaven 900 years before. So the presence of Moses and Elijah, alive and well, talking to Jesus, appearing in glorious splendor, it shows us Jesus' kingdom claims are true. There really is an eternal kingdom for God's people to enjoy. There really is glory that awaits after suffering. Moses and Elijah are enjoying that right now in heaven. And one day, if you trust in Jesus, so will you. You'll get to talk with Jesus like they do. But it's significant that it's these two particular Old Testament people who appear. Both Moses and Elijah in their earthly lives, they met with God on a mountain, the same mountain, Mount Horeb. But neither of them on those mountains, or on that mountain, were able to truly see 
what they wanted. They wanted to see God's glory. And when God passed by Moses, God covered Moses' face as he passed by proclaiming his name. And he removed it at the last second so all Moses could see was God's backside. Elijah had to pull his cloak over his face when God came to talk to him. They both wanted to see God's glory, but they didn't until now. On this mountain, their prayers are finally answered. Their longings are finally fulfilled. They see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And one day, so will you. The third reason Moses and Elijah here is because of what they represent. So Moses and Elijah, they're the two big dogs of the Old Testament. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And together, the law and the prophets is basically a way of talking about the Old Testament, summarizing the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And the point of them being there is to say that the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, it all points to Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus and what he came to do, which is exactly what they're talking about, isn't it? See, when, my, when Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, they're not sort of swapping stories about their great exploits as if they're all equally important in the plan of God. No, no, no. They're talking about one thing and one thing only. Jesus' departure. Or more literally, if, you, if you're using a church Bible, it's got the little A, which takes you to the bottom. It's a footnote. It's the word exodus. They're talking about Jesus' Exodus. Now, in, in verse 51 of this chapter, Jesus will resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And when he gets there, we know what awaits Jesus. He's already told us. The final fulfillment of the eternal plan of God for the Son of God to die on the cross and then be raised to life is Exodus. See, Moses' Exodus, the book of Exodus, is not the real Exodus. It was just a, a dim preview of the true and better Exodus that Jesus would bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. See, Moses commanded the people to sacrifice a Passover lamb so that God's judgment would pass over their houses. It was a shadow a shadow of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who offered himself as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that God's judgment might pass over us. Moses delivered them from slavery to Pharaoh. It was a preview of the true deliverance that Jesus brings, rescuing us from slavery to sin and death. Moses led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea into the promised land of Canaan, the kingdom of Israel. Jesus leads us out of the land of death, through death, into the promised land of the new creation, the kingdom of God, where there is no death. Elijah called down fire from heaven, consuming the sacrifice, winning the God contest. 
Jesus was the sacrifice, consumed by the fire of God in our place. And Jesus rose again, winning the God contest, proving that he is the only real true God. But Moses and Elijah, they're not interested in talking about what they did. They're interested in one thing. They want to talk about what their stuff anticipated and foreshadowed and pointed to and looked forward to. They want to talk about the cross. They want to talk with Jesus about his thing, about his death, his resurrection, which is the crux of all human history. Some of us, I think, we we get bored talking about the cross. But Moses and Elijah, they show us the cross is what it's all about. And in doing so, just for a moment, our eyes are directed away from the Mount of Transfiguration to what Mike McKinley calls the Mount of Disfiguration. Because soon after this mountaintop experience, Jesus would have another hilltop experience. Except in Jerusalem, his clothes would not be white like lightning, but red with blood. He would not be standing between two glorified saints, but between two crucified thieves. There, he would not be shrouded in the cloud of the Father's presence, but the darkness of the Father's absence. But even there, even there on the mountain of disfiguration, we see Jesus' glory. The glory of the one and only Son of God who came to earth as one of us. Who took our sin on himself. Who bore the judgment of God in our place. Who delivers us from death by his death. That we might enjoy life and glory in his kingdom where there is no death. Forever with him. That is the glory of Jesus. See the glory of Jesus. Secondly, listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus, 33 to 36. So Peter, John, and James, they're at the top of the mountain. They see Jesus' glory. They have this amazing experience. But just because you experience it does not mean you understand it. At this moment with Peter in verse 33. It's just another one of those little details that reminds us this really is reliable eyewitness testimony. I mean, what other religious book so brazenly bears the blunders of its leaders? Peter is having one of those moments. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Maybe if you met someone famous or you were introduced to someone that you secretly had a crush on from a distance. He's having one of those moments where he's so nervous that all intelligent thought has disappeared from his head. He starts just talking, and he doesn't really know how to stop. (laughs) And he doesn't even know what he's saying. I mean, he, he seems to realize that Moses and Elijah are about to leave, that this glorious mountaintop moment is ending. And he says to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. It's good. Oh, it's good for us to be here, Jesus. Maybe, oh, let's not let this moment go. Let's stay a while. 
you know, we, we, we could build some shelters for you and, and your two friends, and we'll just camp out on the mountain for a while. Enjoy the glory. We don't have to go. We can, we can stay a while. That was a stupid thing to say. I think Peter is sincere. He wants to honor the people that he's with. But it was a stupid thing to say. He is sincere, but sincerely wrong. Uh, His great confession was just a few days earlier. This is a great clangor. And Peter gets at least a couple of things wrong here. The first is, Peter wants this mountaintop moment of glory to last forever. He wants to prolong this experience of glory and just never let go. He's already forgotten what Jesus told him in verse 22. That first suffering and rejection and death. He's forgotten what Jesus and Moses and Elijah have been talking about. That the exodus, his death on the cross must happen soon in Jerusalem. Jesus did not come in the world primarily for the Mount of Transfiguration. This was only intended to be a glimpse. He came for the Mount of of Disfiguration. He came to suffer and die on the cross for us. I guess like most of us, Peter hears Jesus talking about suffering now and glory then. And Peter thinks, no, 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 no. I want glory now and suffering never. That would be better, right? Jesus, wouldn't it? That would be better. But that's not the pattern of Jesus. Jesus' pattern is suffering first, then glory. The second problem is that Peter seems to imply that somehow Jesus, Moses, or Elijah, they're all sort of on the same level. He wants to build three tabernacles for the three glorious people standing in front of him. But that's just the thing. Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. He is the very glory of God dwelling among humanity. So there are three glorious people in this scene, but there's a difference between them like the difference between the sun and the moon. Matthew tells us, remember, that Jesus shone like the sun. He's the source. Moses and Elijah, they they do shine. They shine in glorious splendor, but they shine like the moon. They are merely reflecting the glory and splendor that Jesus gives and graciously shares to his people. Jesus is not just another prophet. Moses, Mr. Cross the Red Sea, he is not on the same level as Jesus. Elijah, Mr. Call Down Fire from Heaven, is not on the same level as Jesus. Moses and Elijah, they were God's servants. Jesus is God's son. Moses and Elijah, they are in glorious splendor in in a kingdom. But that kingdom belongs to Jesus. Jesus is utterly unique, utterly supreme. Which is exactly what God the Father tells them, isn't it? This is such a kindness of God, I think. Peter is busy uh, digging himself a hole. And before he can dig his hole any deeper, God the Father cuts him off. (laughs) Graciously interrupts Peter before he can say anything else more foolish. And it's such a gracious response. 
This is the second time we hear God speak audibly in Luke's gospel. The first time, you might remember, is in Jesus' baptism. There, the God the Father speaks directly to Jesus. He says to Jesus, you are my son who I love. With you, I'm well pleased. This time, the cloud of God's presence envelops them, and a voice comes from the cloud again. This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And do you see, this time God is not speaking to his son, but to the disciples. He's speaking to us. And to dispel any doubt about who he's speaking about, at the moment the voice speaks, Jesus is alone. Jesus alone is the supreme son of God to whom we must listen. You see what God the Father is saying, right? Because of who Jesus is, you can trust what he says. He is the chosen one of God, so listen to him. The the world offers us a never-ending stream of voices to listen to, each of them telling us how we can live our best life now, telling us what and who to live for. And let me tell you, lots of those voices, they are easier to listen to than Jesus because they cost less, they demand less of you. What Jesus says is often hard and unsettling and costly. When he says to us, deny yourself, take up your cross. But Jesus is the only voice in the universe worth listening to. Because he is the supreme son of God. So we need to listen to Jesus. And we especially need to listen to Jesus about the cross. I think some of us find that hard. Maybe all this talk about denying yourself and taking up your cross and embracing suffering and death, maybe that just all feels a bit serious and intense. We'd rather listen to something a bit more cheerful and uplifting. For others, it's hard to listen to because it's humbling. To realize you can't save yourself. To realize you are so lost, so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. But that he loves you so much he was glad to die for you. For others, a bit like Peter, the cross is just disappointing. We hear Jesus say that the road to glory has to go via suffering. Has to go via death both for him and for us. And it just doesn't sound very appealing. We don't really want a cross. We want comfort now. We want glory now. But God the Father says, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus tell you about the cross. Listen to Jesus tell you what it means to follow him. Listen to him because of who he is. But also, Listen to Jesus because of this event. The purpose of the transfiguration is to give the disciples a preview, a glimpse of the coming kingdom. To show the disciples that this kingdom that Jesus has been telling telling them about is real. The promise he makes that it will be worth it is true. Jesus is really clear with us. There is cost, but there is also gain. 
You can trust Jesus when he makes you that promise. The transfiguration, it's the reassurance that we need that his kingdom will come. That there will be glorious splendor for everyone who follows Jesus. A glimpse of his glory tells you it will be worth it. Like Moses and Elijah, one day we will share in Jesus' glorious splendor. And on that day, you will know without a shadow of doubt, you won't need me to tell you it was worth it. You'll know. And I suspect most of us, I certainly will, I'll look back and I will wonder why I was so half-hearted in this life. I want you to think about some old-school scales. Picture the scales in your mind. And I want you to think of everything that you have given up for Jesus' sake. And I want you to put it on one side of the scales. Think of the money you've given away, the comfort you've given up, the energy you've poured out, the time that you've spent. Put it all on the scales and watch it as it fuds on the floor. It's a heavy weight and it ought to be. But then, on the other side of the scales, put the eternal glory of being with Jesus forever in the new creation. And watch again as that side comes down so hard and so fast that it flings everything else off the other side. That's what eternity will be like. Look, I I know that lots of us are suffering in all kinds of ways. That it costs you in all kinds of ways to follow Jesus. Some ways that are seen, many ways that are not seen. I know how hard it is to keep following Jesus through that. Here is Jesus' promise. Our eternal glory will far outweigh all this life's afflictions. Our eternal glory will far outweigh all of this life's afflictions. It will be worth it to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Jesus will make sure. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that what Jesus tells us is trustworthy and true. That there really is an eternal kingdom of eternal glory awaiting all of those who deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. So we pray, Father, please help us to listen to Jesus, to take him at his word, to follow him knowing that it will be worth it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are going to sing a song now. It's a song about what it's like to follow Jesus through darkness, through suffering, through weakness.
but with his promise and assurance that one day we will stand with joy before his throne and it will all be worth it. So let's stand and sing, yet not I.